0: Well, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and so I'm going to be preaching this morning on the topic of repentance. Last week I mentioned that I might be on the topic of justification, but I changed my mind. And repentance is arguably more central to the Reformation, even than the doctrine of justification that came out of it. In our passage this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, we'll read the first ten verses. And in our passage, we see two groups of people that need to repent. On the one hand, religious leaders, or people who already know a lot about God, and on the other hand, sinners. Okay, you've got both of these groups represented, and... Both of them are presented to us as needing to repent, and yet in very different different ways. So think about yourself, and think about what repentance needs to look like for you, and who you are in this passage. Please stand for the reading of God's Word, again, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Martin Luther was concerned about repentance, featuring it at both the beginning and end of his 95 Theses. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, you see that here on the front of your bulletin. If you grabbed a bulletin, right, printed on the front. We only had room for the first 16 of 95. But this gives you an idea. It really, the 95 aren't going to take up that much space, right? If 16 of them fit on a half sheet like this, nicely formatted and printed in a font that takes up more space than it needs to, <laughs> right? <clears throat> but what does he start with? He starts with... When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Notice that word believers. The entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Well, I'm not preaching on Martin Luther's 95 Theses, but I want to connect this historically to what we, as a church, call ourselves. We call ourselves Reformed, right? And really... If you think about the word reform or reformation, what you realize is that there is a close connection between that word and repentance or repent. And it's not just re at the front of it, right? I mean, they both start with re, yes. But, but the similarity doesn't end there. There's, there's a connection between Repentance and reformation, because you cannot reform anything without repenting of what it was. Right? If you think about reforming a a a piece of clay that you've made into something, right? If you if you roll out the clay and you, do you guys ever make these um, these uh, do this in school where you have to make the snake of clay real skinny and then you have to wrap it over and over on itself and try to keep it all perfectly. And at the end you have this nice clay, I don't know, cup or bowl or whatever. And you get done with all of that work and you decide that you are going to reform it. If you're going to reform it, you're going to be done with its previous form, aren't you? You have to repent of its previous form in order to reform it. And so that's why repentance and reformation go together. There is is no way truly to reform. If If you take an organization, and an organization decides that it's on the wrong track, and it's going to go through a reformation of its... Take Uber, for example, right? Uber has been in the news for all kinds of negative stuff in the last three, six months. And really, what what they need is they need their corporate culture to be reformed, to do away with all sorts of problematic, uh, what would they call the behavior... Sexism and sexual, uh, um, you know, abuse and uh, and just a culture of rule breaking and broishness. Okay, so that's if you read the if you read the news and you read about Uber, that's what they'll say. But if if, if Uber is going to have a reformation of its corporate character. It has to repent of all of that stuff that I just said before it can take on a new culture of, you know, honesty and integrity and fidelity and all of these things, right? There is really no reformation of anything. If you're going to reform your eating habits, the only way you can reform your eating habits is if you have decided that all of the sugar that you're eating is worth repenting of, right? You have to to turn away from something for there to be any true sort of reformation. And so what Luther starts by addressing is the individual life of the Christian, saying that the individual life of the Christian, the believer, must be a life continually of repentance according to the command of Jesus Christ, right? But that's not where the Reformation ends. That's where it starts. The Reformation ends by taking that one concept of repentance being at the the heart of the Christian life and applying that and, and its consequences out onto everything and everywhere that the church had been preaching and teaching with relation to repentance. okay, Or had not been saying with regard to repentance. So what Luther saw, ultimately, was not just individuals that needed to be taught more clearly what the Bible said, but what Luther saw was a church that had turned people away from repentance, away from true repentance, by making them put their hope in something else, which was their works. And so it is in our passage this morning that the Pharisees and the scribes that begin to grumble as Jesus spends time with sinners had begun to put their hope in their own works rather than in the Messiah, the promised one that would come, right? And so there's a lot of similarity, and this is something that happens over and over and over again, and is a temptation that is common to all of us. So it's not something that Jesus took care of when he told these two parables. It's not something that Luther took care of at the time of the Reformation, right? It's still something that we are tempted by today, which is to simply be people who are basically good. You don't do drugs. You don't do things that are going to, like, actively destroy your life. And then you're, you're one of the good people. And then you don't need any repentance, you don't need to worry about repentance, you're just one of the good people. Jesus doesn't leave the parables without making clear that even if you're one of the good people, there is still need for repentance. We'll get into that a little bit more. As we get further into the passage. But let's go back to Luther. The Roman Catholic Church, the teaching is best understood by the men I've talked to who said, I don't believe, these are people who grew up Roman Catholic and had left the church, claimed no faith, well, claimed had no claim to righteousness, let's, let's put it that way. These were, these were men who would, who would call themselves the sinners, okay? And who, when I spoke to them, said, I don't believe in that just say you're sorry and it's forgiven nonsense, except they didn't use the word nonsense, <clears throat> just say it's sorry and it's forgiven nonsense. Now, that's not something that the Roman Catholic Church taught them, okay? Because the Roman Catholic Church doesn't have a just say it's sorry and it's forgiven kind of doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church has a uh, go to Mass, go to confession, fulfill the requirements that are given to you at confession. And then maybe you're close to being forgiven. But you also might need to spend some time suffering in purgatory before you're actually forgiven. And then, if you don't want to do that, there's a way out of that. If you really, truly want to be forgiven, you can get yourself an indulgence. And this is what really, uh, what would you say? flipped Luther's lid. It made him blow up. It's what caused the Reformation ultimately. nothing. I don't think anything besides indulgences would have been far enough, would have been big enough for Luther to really go big like he did. What were indulgences? It was a promise on the part of the church that you could be forgiven if you just did this one thing. And at the time, the one thing was buying an indulgence. All you had to do was give the church money so that they could keep building their cathedrals, keep painting the Sistine Chapel. And if you did that, if you gave them money, if you gave money towards that building project... Then they would give you a guarantee that you would be forgiven and that you wouldn't have to spend time in purgatory. It's a financial exchange. You could buy your forgiveness. That's wicked. Okay? It's a wicked, evil doctrine from hell. And that's why Luther just finally had had enough. Because Luther was a pastor. Among other things, his responsibility was for the souls of people that he taught and preached to and explained the word to. And so he saw that people were putting their hope in these pieces of paper that they had bought that said they were forgiven. And he thought to himself, this is crazy. This is not what the Bible says. This is not what Jesus teaches. There is no hope for these people they need to repent. So the Reformation began. Now you fast forward today, and you think about those men that I was talking to who said, I don't believe in that whole. just say it's sorry and it's forgiven. Crap. And <clears throat> That was their understanding of Protestant, a Reformation doctrine. Okay? So they had grown up Roman Catholic, and they'd, they'd been taught that they were sinners. They had heard that they were wicked. They had believed that because they saw themselves. They realized what they did, and then they saw their own heart and what it was like and the things that they wanted, and they thought, that's wicked. Oh, right, the church is right. That's wicked. But then what had happened is... <clears throat> Seeing their sin more clearly than most, they gave up. They gave up working their way to heaven. Because they just said, this is hopeless. There's no way I can ever do anything to make myself righteous enough to actually get into heaven. And so with these, men, these are the kind of men who wouldn't have bothered buying an indulgence because they would have said, there's no way that's going to work. You get what I'm saying? They're not going to bother. And by the way, indulgences are still a thing in the Roman Catholic Church. Generally, they're not for sale, but there are certain things that you can do. If you, uh, what was it, in the year 2000, I think if you went on, um, what's it called? Pilgrimage, yeah, if you went on pilgrimage to one of the holy sites, I think that was in the year 2000, they said that you could get a an indulgence. <clears throat> well, these men that I was talking to weren't going to bother going on pilgrimage. That wouldn't have done anything for them, and they knew it. So these men are caught, caught halfway between Protestant Reformation teaching and Roman Catholic teaching, okay? The... And without any hope, and the reason is because they see enough to act to, to correctly reject the idea that they can work their way to heaven. But then they've never been truly taught how you can actually be saved. They they, they think that the teaching is simply just say you're sorry and it's forgiven. Okay, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Reformation taught. That's not Protestant doctrine. It's not what Jesus says. If you think about our passage and the celebrating that happens when the one is found, the one sheep, the one coin, the angels celebrate you're not going to have that kind of celebration over somebody going, Yeah, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? There's something miraculous going on when somebody is saved, there's something amazing happening. Christian doctrine. Christian teaching is that those who repent will be saved. And repenting isn't just saying, I'm sorry. You understand that? Repentance is not just saying, yeah, I'm sorry, or I was wrong. There's more to repentance than that, which is not to say that repentance is a great work that you accomplish, okay? And this, this can get confusing. It can, it, we, we, can, we can even, in our attempt to work our way to heaven, make repentance into a work, all right? You can begin to treat repentance as a work inappropriately. What is repentance well let's go back to this passage in luke fifteen and this is not a real um, theological doctrinal passage it it's a parable it's filled with teaching it's f- it's filled with doctrine but it's not it's not some uh it's not some theological explanation of repentance, right? It's not, a, it's not a careful discussion of justification or anything like that that you're going to find in Romans or, or so forth. <clears throat> this is a parable. But the parable centers around repentance. The sinner needs to repent. The sinner needs to repent. Who is the sinner? Well, the sinner is somebody who doesn't claim to be following Christ, somebody who doesn't claim to be good. In the the passage, the, the start to these parables is that two kinds of people were hanging out with Jesus... the tax collectors, and the sinners. Now let's be clear. Most sinners are not interested in hanging around Jesus. Right? So when we read that this happened, we've got to keep, it, we've got to keep a straight understanding in our mind There is an attraction to the words of Jesus, to his life, to his ministry. There were great crowds that gathered around him, okay? But most of the crowds were made up of the believers, the Jews, who already were working on their faith, okay? Even if they hadn't put their faith in their works, these were people who had been taught the word of God, who, had, who followed it, for the most part, who, who made up these crowds. And yet you also have this group that are called the sinners that are there. Most of that group isn't interested in, in hanging around Jesus. There is something unique about Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus was one of the tax collectors? And he just was curious. He just wanted to know. He wanted to see this Jesus guy and find out what was going on. And how many tax collectors were there? Lots and lots of tax collectors, okay? And some of them were Jesus' disciples in the end. Matthew, the apostle, was a tax collector. Zacchaeus, a tax collector. But what you don't have is you don't have this this, uh, description in the New Testament about how all of the prostitutes and all of the tax collectors were hanging around Jesus and, and came to faith and and became his disciples. Right? There's something unique about Zacchaeus, that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. And that word spread, it spread through those who were the sinners. Especially spread as good news among the sinners, because the sinners were the people who had no hope. The sinners were the people who had no hope for themselves. And so, when we see a sinner repent, it's a miracle. It's a completely joyful miracle. It's something that we're to celebrate. And we're to celebrate it in a way that, even with Jesus' parables, I don't think most of us get today. I was thinking as we were reading the scripture lesson in Exodus, the description of the robes that the priests wore, right? <clears throat> and I was thinking about how valuable clothes were at that time. That there, if, you, if you lost a set of clothes, it meant something. You had lost something substantial, right? And so you're not just... Even if you're just talking about the, the people are to provide garments for the priests, if you just said the people provide clothes for the priests, that would be saying something substantial. And to us today, like, oh, the people, the church is going to provide, you know, the church is going to provide clothes for the pastor. Okay, what, like everybody chip in two bucks? That's nothing. But at that time... Clothes were much more substantial. So, why, what does this have to do with anything? Well, fast forward, and you see, and you at the foot of the cross, the soldiers are casting dice for Jesus' clothes, right? And it's something substantial. Now, I know I'm still not making the connection for you guys, but bear with me, okay? How many of you want the clothes from a guy who's being executed? No hands are up. Why? Well, because it's not valuable, right? We, we have so many clothes today, we don't have any idea what to do with them. We have so many clothes that we give them away, so, just so that we can have them out of our house, so we can have more room. Right, this is the value of clothes to us today. So our our understanding of a lot of things that happen in the Bible is totally skewed by how much the value has changed of clothes. Right? Well, look at now at this passage, and the same thing has happened where you've got a hundred sheep, right, and ninety-nine of them are there, and one is gone missing. <clears throat> And Jesus says to them, how many of you are going to just ignore the one lost one and just keep the 99? And I'm thinking, well, us here today, everybody raise your hand. We're all just going to stick with the 99. No point going out and risking my butt over one lost sheep out there. Right? The value proposition has changed in this sort of thing. You get what I'm talking about? But, if, but the reason is because Money is so different when you're in a, a, a church and a society, a country that is as wealthy as ours is. And so risk is totally different, right? You're in a society that has no, no concept at this time. In, in Jesus' time, you're dealing with a society that doesn't have insurance, on the loss of a sheep, right? You don't buy an insurance plan on your crops at this time. The value of the sheep is substantial. You are going to go out. Now, is there any way for us to bring this forward to today and... Connected a little bit more clearly to us. I don't know. It's clearly... These are financial financial stories, right? Okay, so if you're going to do it, you've got to make it something that is really of value to you. What's really valuable to you? Well... If you think about a business, and that's more what sheep are, you know, it's a it's a business. So you're you're running a business and you take out a loan to buy inventory. And the inventory is, you know, you manage to save up and borrow enough to buy ten. Because one of these stories, it's ten, right? Yeah, ten in one. Or nine in one. Yeah. <clears throat> ten what? what what's going to be of value? You're going to make a business off of selling one at a time. What's that? Yeah, if you, Yeah. So, so a vehicle. Ten, 10 trucks, you're going to open up a, a car lot. You've got to start small. You're not going to buy a, a giant dealership. and one of them gets stolen. Okay. One of them is missing now. Well, I've still got the other nine. Is that how you're going to deal with it? No, you lose one and your business goes under. You lose one of them and you're done for. Because one the profit that you are going to make on it versus the the cost to you, right? You you bought it for 30,000, you're going to sell it for 32. You can sell all 10 and you're going to make just $20,000 or something, right? You're going to have to buy more as the year goes by. You guys you guys understand what's at stake here? You lose one and you go under. who's not going to call the police who's not going to go and look around for clues which of you isn't going to search to try to figure out who had access to the keys we're all going to when we when we understand rightly what's going on here we're all going to go try to find and if you get that car back you're saved you're no longer financially ruined, right? This is cause for what? Rejoicing for celebration. What a beautiful thing. The angels see the value. They see the they see it rightly. One man saved. It's time for a party. Do we see it rightly? Do we see it like the angels see it? Like our Heavenly Father sees it? The one sheep. The one sheep that's lost. It's the fact that he's lost that makes it worth celebrating about when he's found and brought back. So what in the world does this have to do with repentance? Well, the sheep that is lost is the sheep that is the sinner, the one that needs to repent. And if he never repents, there's never the time of celebration. It's not like, oh, well, we found him and he was dead, but at least he died a quick and painless death falling off the cliff. No. There's no celebrating. There's no celebration. The joy of seeing a sinner repent is what is missing on the part of the religious people. The desire to see them repent. Because the desire has to be there before you can have rejoicing when it happens. They don't even want to see those people repent. And why? Why do religious people not want to see sinners repent? Well, because number one, you don't want to go out and do the work of wandering around in the mountains trying to find them. You don't want to get cut up by brambles, and you don't want to... There's all sorts of hassle that comes with saving the one, right? But number two, because we don't, have, we don't put any value on them, <clears throat> What we actually want is to add a bunch of clean people who don't need to repent. Because clean people don't smell and don't cause problems. So Jesus is is rebuking the religious people, the religious leaders, the other Jews who saw themselves as clean, And he's saying, you value a sheep, a truck. One of your bank accounts more than you value this man made in God's image. And so the sinner and the religious leader, both, are skewered through by this parable, aren't they? Sinner, why are you out there instead of repenting? Repent and be a part of the flock of Jesus Christ. And we'll celebrate with you. Religious person who thinks highly of yourself... It's time for you to care about your fellow sheep and whether they repent. This is Jesus' teaching on repentance. Like I said, it's not real deeply theological, it's just on the necessity of it for everybody. Repent of your lack of care for your fellow sinner. I was reading, uh, actually, I didn't read much of it, but I I stumbled upon a a podcast on Freakonomics, if you're familiar with it. There was a a podcast they did recently, I guess, where they brought in all of these heavy-hitting psychologists and, and tech people, and they had decided that they were going to <clears throat> apply for MacArthur uh, Foundation grant, I don't know, a million dollars or something like that, that they wanted funding, they were going to tackle the biggest problem. And now the biggest problem in in their minds is people are dumb. And they keep doing things that are bad for them, even though they know that it's bad for them. How many of you are like that? Okay, every hand's up now. (laughs) You know you shouldn't do that, and and then you do it, and it's bad for you 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 know you should go out and exercise instead of having that second piece of cake or that second pack of cigarettes or whatever it is right you know you know you should do that but instead you do the other and they think that they can solve this problem they're idiots They're idiots. They're complete idiots. They, they, in the hubris, the pride of thinking that they've got the solution. You know what their solution was? If you, I skimmed through it. I ran into this one sentence. Their primary tool is going to be, are you ready for it? A computer program. They think that if they just track everything and that they're able to like you know inject into your life at just the right moment this reminder you know that somehow it's going to that's going to make all the difference this outside prompt from your phone how many of you are going to keep your phone in your pocket i don't know how they're planning on doing it you know but like this this is the the thing is it requires you to have technology with you constantly that means it's your phone right so, you, so how many of you are going to keep your phone if it's always Reminding you, right when you want to do something else, like smoke, and you just you've given up on quitting, right? You know, how many of you are going to keep it if right then it says, "Hey, let's go on a walk together"? It's like every, it's like it's like all of those cartoons and movies where you know the the huge hammer comes out from beside the bed down on the alarm clock, or the out from underneath the pillow comes the gun, and bang, bang, there goes the alarm clock. I don't want to get up. This is what happens to things that try to make me get up when I don't want to get up. This is the way we are, right? Now, are you... Now, repentance is turning away from doing what your flesh desires, and turning to God, right, for hope that you can be saved, that you can be forgiven for all those other times that you didn't turn away from it, and all those future times that you will once again do what your flesh desires instead of what God requires. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, and everything's taken care of. It's saying, I turn away from the idiotic hope that I can make myself good, whether that is by hypnosis, or whether that's by reading enough psychology, or, or whether that's by taking the right kind of drugs, or whether that's by getting the right group of people in charge of creating this technology that's going to change the world okay you're not going to do it you're not going to be able to there's no money that you can pay to make yourself forgiven to make yourself good the only way is for you to put your faith in Jesus Christ whose blood was shed so that your sins could be forgiven it's not just saying i'm sorry and then your sins are forgiven Those sins are paid for in a way that you can never pay. This is the heart of the Reformation. This is the heart of repentance. And this is why we celebrate when somebody's life is changed because you look at them and you think, ain't no way they did that. Because I know what they were like. God is at work, bringing his people to repentance. Let's celebrate repentance. Let's pray.